Hi, this is Liz Tinkham, and welcome to Third Act, a podcast about people embracing the third act of their lives with a new sense of purpose and direction. The third act begins when your script ends, but your show's not finished. Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's Third Act. On the show, I talk with Cheryl Jackson, the model of grit and grace. Unlike my usual introductions, I'm not going to preview Cheryl's backstory because you need to hear it unfold as she tells it. I will just say that after my interview with her, I was struck by her perseverance to keep pushing through several incredibly tough jobs and two devastating personal issues. And yet she came through with grit and grace in the fullest sense of both words, which she now passes on through her conferences and her consulting business. I am so honored to have had the chance to interview Cheryl and delighted to share this episode with all of you. Please leave me feedback on what you thought after listening. Cheryl, welcome to Third Act. I'm delighted to have you on the show today. Uh, Well, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Well, and a quick thank you to Andre Hughes, who was one of the first guests on the show, who's a mutual friend of ours. And I think maybe we met once before at Powered by Action. Correct. Long time ago. Long time ago. Long time ago. Well, I can't wait to unwind your story. So you're the founder of Grit and Grace, a coaching and media company. And as we unwind your story, I don't think any of my guests have demonstrated as much grit as you have throughout your career. And we're all going to hear about it here in a second. But I want to start with your first act, the art degree from Northwestern. So <laughs> what were your plans post-graduation with that degree? You know, I didn't have very many plans, a game plan of action. I was a true, I guess, artist just living in the moment. I remember asking Ed Paschke, who was one of my instructors, is a very well noted 20th century artists. And uh, so I asked him, you know, should I go to graduate school for a master's in painting? What should I do? And his advice was, no, just go live life. You know, don't don't try to take a job that puts you on a certain corporate career path. Just, you know, just something to pay the minimal bills to exist and and paint. That was his advice. So, um, so I sort of did that. <laughs> I sold everything from hot dogs and handing out samples at picnics. And this is with a Northwestern degree. You can imagine yeah, my parents. Yeah. Were just I bet your parents swoony. were thrilled with that, right? Oh my gosh, <laughs> thrilled with that. And so I, I, I decided that I would uh, apply for a painting program in Cortona, Italy through the University of Georgia and Cortona is now referred to as Tuscany. And so I was, my heart set on that and I applied, got accepted and all that I needed to do was get my transcripts uh, in and had my trunk packed and it was was gonna go painting in Cortona, Italy for a year. But I couldn't get my transcripts from Northwestern because I still owed like a thousand dollars. And and so they wouldn't, (laughs) give me my transcripts. <laughs> they won't release them. I know no. we've been through that with our kids who haven't paid for some reason. Right. 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 So there, my whole life changed. Yeah. And then event, you were thinking after that, you, that you might go on to be a professor. So what happened with that career? So after th- that, um, I kind of stumbled around and, and my father's like, okay, finally came to the fact that I wanted a career in the arts. So he enrolled me without my knowledge into graduate school for graphic design. So uh, trying to give the, his child some direction and focus. So I had nothing better else to do. So I said, sure, why not? I'll go ahead and go to college. 
the master's program in graphic design. And so I was I had interview. I was nearing the end of the program and I began interviewing to be a professor. Um, I interviewed for a university in Ohio and uh, made it through all the rounds of um, interviewing. Again, fate stepped in and uh, they had to put the entire search person. Uh, process on hold because the head of the search committee is a young man uh, came out of remission from cancer ended up passing away while he was while they put it on hold uh, I became ill with Graves disease that's hyperthyroid storm and that changed my trajectory how did it change your trajectory well I first it was very serious um, I had to have you know radiation to shrink the quarter uh, heart medication to regulate my heart it was very very serious. I took a leave of absence and one of my instructors would not um, recognize that, um, you know, except that it was a leave of absence. All of my other instructors did, gave me incompletes except for her. Um, She was, you know, professor in my study of major and she gave me an F and I was the number one student in the program. And I was like, but this is my health issues. I every all the other professors, I have documentation and she just refused. It broke my heart uh, and I couldn't, you know, I just I just couldn't reconcile with that. And so I ended up not returning uh, there. I spent two and a half years and I decided to then I didn't think I wanted to teach anymore. And I just was unsure about that career path. And so I began I entered the workforce and took my first job as um, a graphic designer for a local PBS NPR station in Memphis. And that you ended up eventually moving to Washington, D.C., and you told me that that's when real ambition kicked in. So what happened there at NPR in Washington? I, yes, I, I, I saw I got a picture from my future and the picture came to me. Um, I'm an African-American woman at the time. I was in my 30s. But the picture of my future came to me through young 30, uh, 20 something year old uh, white boys who were you know, stepping into these big jobs is the dot-com era. And they were 21, 22, 23, and they were, you know, becoming presidents and CEOs and VPs of companies, uh, tech companies. And I just, here I was, 32, astonished at this. Like, how is that? So I decided then and there that I told my then husband, I said, I'm I'm going to be a vice president. And he looked at me like I was nuts. Like, are you crazy? And I said, if they could do it in my 20s, then surely I can do it. So I didn't see myself as a woman or a, or a black woman, but um, I, I was able to craft a vision for my future. And, and I began to sort of put the pieces together. I didn't know how, um, but I knew that, I think it was the advocacy and the fight in me, that there was something wrong with that, that I had to be okay with where I was, but the, the sky was a limit um, for, for them. So something in me just turned over. I think it was my soul seeking exp- expansion, actually. And um, and so then it was there that I didn't start applying for jobs. I was working for NPR at the time. Uh, actually, was I working for NPR? But I, 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 I didn't set out, start applying for jobs as vice presidents. I just began to get um, a vision for myself. And in my role, I crafted a vision for the company. And I began to just, you know, pursue ideas and to self-educate myself about various strategies and how I could really grow into the role and grow the company as, as well. So it was, it was NPR that I caught the ambition wave. 
Did you get to become a vice president? I did. I did. Yeah. I think that's a, you know, Cheryl, I think it's a terrific lesson for some of our younger listeners who, who might also have that same sort of issue with thinking they're not ready or that they're not good enough, right? And they need to kind of, vis- I love the visualization part of it, right? And then work your way, announce it and work your way up to it, right? That's, that's always been my strategy as I look back on my life. I first uh, visualize it. I catch the vision for myself. And then I make a pronouncement. Like um, I don't, and I didn't ruminate in my head or in my heart. I speak it aloud, a pronouncement. Um, it's sort of that accountability. It makes it more real. And then I set about it. But um, within 36 months, I went from an art director to vice president of corporate communications and marketing. That's unbelievable. So eventually you come back to Chicago, you work for Amtrak and then for Governor Rod Blagojevich. So, okay, I'm from Illinois and from Chicago. And given the reputation of Illinois politics, I just can't imagine (laughs) what you did there. So tell us a little bit about what you did for Rod and what it was like. And I think we're going to hear some real grit in this part of the story. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Well, I was the, I ended up being the communications director and chief press secretary. When I was asked to interview for the job, I didn't know why they were bringing me to this home of the person that was hosting over the weekend was very secretive. They were trying to keep everything on the hush-hush. And they just said, be here. It was a a day before Thanksgiving. Uh, Be here at the house, um, and we want to talk to you. So I go in. I'm thinking they're going to talk to me about a board seat or, um, you know, to work for the department, to run the Department of Economic uh, Opportunity and Commerce and Economic Opportunity. And when they told me, we're here to talk to you about being the communications director and press secretary, I said, but I don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> you hadn't visualized yourself in that role, I had right? not. I, let me tell you what, because I watched the West Wing and I saw CJ Craig <laughs> and I yeah, was like, yeah. oh, heck no, I do not want right. that job. And it's, it's um, a tough job. Yeah, it's a tough job. And so I didn't know about being a press secretary and in, in, uh, in government or for politics, but I watched the show and I knew it was tough. And they told me and when I said I wasn't interested in that and I was interested in, you know, the Department of Commerce and Economic Opportunity. They said, the only reason why we called you here is to talk to you about this job, communications and press secretary job. And so we're not here to talk to you about anything else but this job. And so we need to answer because the chief of staff is walking through the door any minute to talk. And so you need to decide. And before I could even draw the next breath, in walks the chief of staff and he just pointed his head, his his hand, finger towards the kitchen where they were doing the interviews without even saying hello or anything. He just pointed toward the kitchen. And I got up, I walked and I sat to the kitchen, sat down at the table and I began to pitch for the job like I wanted it with all of my heart. You know, I don't think I've had any, I've had anybody that I've interviewed so far who's worked in government politics, nor I don't know if we have that many listeners. So what did you take away from the, the like the best and the worst of that experience? And, and how did it change you, if at all? Well, I still have PTSD from that experience. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's the worst. All right, tell us why. <laughs> okay. um, it's a one, a tough job. Uh, you know, you wake up every morning with X on your back um, or the governor's back, the principal's back. And it's then, you know, you're in his sikes. Um, and, and he was a difficult personality. 
uh, it was difficult personality to work for. So on top of that, being the only woman, and the, so I was the first woman and the first uh, person of color in that job. I was the only woman and only African-American uh, in, the, um, in the top, in his inner cabinet. And so it's very isolating. So it's a tough job. Uh, I've never worked in politics or government. It's high profile. My face and name is everywhere, every single day. Um, not only outside, but then uh, this governor was obsessed with the media. So um, what I did was his 24-7 obsession. So it was uh, all eyes on me inside and out um, and in a very unforgiving and uh, difficult environment. I would even say toxic. OK, let me start playing around. That was toxic. OK, it was toxic. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I remember once it was I was so dreading this press conference um, that I got, I pulled into the garage to park. I got out of my car and I tossed my cookies. I mean, it was just that kind of job. Wake up at five o'clock in the morning, getting MF'd by the governor. It was just a tough job. But what I, the, the upside of the job is I learned a lot. I grew in a way, it's such a fast pace my skill set, my insight, uh, everything. I just, it was so much growth. It came at an expense. I paid a high price for it, but there was a lot of growth. Yeah, marriage, health, all of it. I paid a very, sometimes, you know, you're writing checks and you don't even realize you're writing a check. Uh, I was writing a big check and I didn't understand what I was doing. Uh, But outside of that, I also saw how I could help impact or contribute to improving the plight of people. I awakened in that job. My consciousness awakened. My soul awakened. I, 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 there was an awakening of me at a deeper level in that job. Um, and, it, and it really laid the groundwork and the pathway to the, the job that would follow. Yeah, because yeah, after that, you went to work, a terrific run as the first female CEO of the Chicago Urban League. What are you most proud of of your work there? Tell us a little bit about that Urban League. So the Chicago Urban League is a venerable civil rights organization. It's been around a very long now, uh, over 100 years. When I became the CEO, I was their first woman in, at the time, 93-year history of the organization, which is kind of crazy when you think about it, civil rights. So what I'm most when I came in, I came in, you know, blazing. I was still like kind of a juggernaut from the prior job working administration. So I'm sure I probably freaked out the staff, you know, sleepy, quiet little staff. And I'd come in like, what do you mean you're not working at two o'clock in the morning? Well, OK, we're still my emails. So, um, right. right. So I had to clean your language that. up, too. Right? I had to clean that up. Um, no, I've had to do that, too. Yes, I had to clean that up. I had to be normal. My then husband and said, you know, it's not cool sending emails at two and three o'clock in the morning. Um, So I, but what I'm most proud of are two things. One, I moved the organization away from social services to economic empowerment. So um, not that social services weren't important. There were other, a plethora of other organizations doing it and doing it many, some much, much better than the Chicago Urban League, but no, too few organizations. At the time, no organization was focused on economic empowerment in the African-American community. And I felt like that was the right space for the Chicago Urban League. So um, I focused on growing businesses and, you know, helping people uh, acquire skill sets. But what I'm most proud of is I sued my former boss, 
<laughs> and the state of Illinois uh, for how it funds public schools as a violation. Oh, you're kidding. You sued Rod? I sued Rod. Okay. And I paid the price for that. But I sued Rod and I sued the state of Illinois for how it funds public education as a violation of the civil rights of poor, poor black and brown children. And that was the biggest and boldest move. And it was the absolute right thing to do. How, how did it turn out? <laughs> well, um, the administration put a brick on me, uh, put a brick on the Chicago Urban League. We received no funding from the state. Eventually, um, it was, uh, you know, went through the courts for, for years. I stepped away. So it was maybe two, th- two years later, I stepped away to run for U.S. Senate and, and do other things. But um, about, I think, almost uh, seven years later, six or seven years later, um, the state of Illinois uh, settled. Uh, and uh, it, there was something, but it was so watered down. It really... Re- really required a, a full-on um, campaign to keep the pressure on to make the, the the powers that be do the right thing. God love you and courage, because Illinois politics are just uh, so, so tough. And you just slipped something in there and you said, I stepped away to run for Senate. So, okay, why, when, what happened? <laughs> well, I was, uh, you know, really doing amazing work. We were doing amazing work at the Chicago Urban League, the Urban League and the team there. Uh, But I had no intentions of running for U.S. Senate. It wasn't even in my consciousness to run for U.S. Senate. You know, when President Obama won his election, his seat was vacated. And uh, the 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 initial thing was it was going to, you know, the the governor needed to appoint someone. And so uh, all that to say is that uh, the president uh, had a short list, uh, a list of who he would like to see replace him in the Senate. And I was on that list. And so I here I, I never thought of myself in that role. And uh, then to be on the short list of the most you know, important and powerful, powerful man in the world as someone to replace him in the U.S. Senate gave me a sense of, uh, again, I got a new vision for myself and my possibilities. And so I think the, the, the thinking was that, you know, he would uh, appoint me, um, a former governor would appoint me. It, the, on paper, it made sense, but, you know, he had other ideas for that seat. Um, and so, yes, this is still Blagojevich, you know, the whole drama is why he went and had to take an extended vacation. Okay. It, <laughs> the federal penitentiary. In the penitentiary, right. right yeah. Exactly. Like most Illinois governors. Yeah, that's right. right. He had to take an extended vacation. So, so when he did his thing, then they had to run um, a special election or it was up for, the seat was up for, um, uh, for, for election. And so I still, you know, hadn't planned on running, uh, even though now I, I, it was part of what's possible for me, um, until I met with one of the candidates and I was just like, oh my God, this cannot be. And so I ran because, you know, anybody but you, um, is what spurred me to run. And it was in the midst of the great recession. And I saw the pain of people, uh, particularly the people that I was hired to serve, which is the African-American community. People were losing their homes, their businesses. Uh, it was horrible. I was getting calls in the middle of the night and to have someone be so cavalier about it. 
just, it was just show and tell for them. It angered me so. And so I, um, and this person would have won with the solid vote of the, uh, of the black community that I wanted the black community to know better and to do better, even if it meant running myself. And so I did. Okay. Now you didn't win, but what lessons did you take away from the experience? You don't not go into battle uh, with a team of people you don't know. You, you, you have to have someone on your team that you have had some experience and a track record with. So I had a campaign team that was just uh, um, not even from Illinois, all outside of Illinois. I didn't know them. They didn't know me. And that's a you don't mount the biggest battle of your life with people that you've not seen before. What, did the Democratic Party give those people to you or? No, uh, the Democratic Party kept people from me uh, because uh, so I had to go and um get people from outside of Illinois. So I was, you know, um, they wanted, they, they picked their man and, uh, and then they, they were lining up behind this person and I was not it. So, uh, so I had to do that. So that's, that's a lesson I learned. And also, uh, passion is absolutely important, but you need a plan and a well thought out plan. So I, I, I responded, um, you know, I was passionate uh, in the in the moment. And um, let's just say uh, if I were to run again, I absolutely would have everything in place to absolutely win it. OK. And can we ask, are you going to run again? <laughs> I told you I've um, got a condo. I'm moving back to Chicago part time. So please. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that would be a no. Um, uh, that would be a no. Um, but, you know, you never know what future holds. Right. Exactly what might be initialized. Well, I'm going to skip ahead a bit to the brilliant TEDx talk you gave in 2018, which we'll put a link to in the show notes. So talk a little bit about that talk and what happened afterwards. So in 2018, I was uh, asked to give a talk and I knew immediately what I wanted to talk about. I ended up giving a talk called Grit and Grace. And that talk was motivated by my own personal life crisis. Uh, when um, divorce and cancer showed up on my doorstep hand in hand. And so, I, I, you know, I'm a tough cookie. So you, you talked about Illinois politics. You have to be tough. OK, I've worked in Illinois government. Politics. I prided myself on my ability to bounce back because you because you will get knocked down multiple times. So I was really like, okay, I I'm I I can bounce back. I'm a, uh, that is one of my superpowers, running, uh, bouncing back and running through walls. Um, so when I first got diagnosed with breast cancer, it it definitely dazed me. I, I was like dazed for a minute, and uh, but it didn't take long for me to 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 switch gears and get in beast mode and 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 to run my my care team and be. Focus. I ended up having a radical left mastectomy, um, but it was um, the, the day after one of my big surgeries, or the day of actually, that my my marriage imploded in in just a nanosecond. It seemed, and I ended up having to leave my home the day after the surgery to um, to a hotel to recuperate. It was that combination that. Um, 
I could not evoke my superpowers of bouncing back and running through a wall. I was, I just never experienced that kind of lostness, that kind of brokenness, that kind of um, despair. I could not pull myself out of it. And it was in that space at the bottom of my bottom that I sort of, you know, came, thought about or heard this phrase, grit and grace, one won't let you give up, the other makes it okay to let go and you need both in life to succeed. I'd been so focused on the grit, I didn't know about this grace piece. You know, we we know grace for those, even if you're a person of faith, you certainly know it, but I think everybody understands the concept of grace in a biblical sense. It's something that you receive from God. Um, And then in a practical sense, we're often taught to extend grace to others. Um, But what we aren't taught is how to offer yourself grace. And what does that look like? I did not know what that looked like. And I knew instinctively it had to be more than a a mani-pedi in a bubble bath. It's got to be more than that. And so that began my quest for how to offer myself grace as a way. I didn't know if it would pull me out of this hole, but uh, I started this this quest to understand what what this meant, um, like in practical terms. And so, um, and I found it and it was the thing that saved me and that brought me back to myself was um, this notion of, Grace, it's it's uh, uh, love in action. It's like p- taking decisive action on um, offering yourself compassion, love, and um, an understanding. And so it can show up and manifest itself in, in many different ways. Sometimes I talk about this in my talk. It's okay if your world goes small for a while, and that it's okay if you have relationships, you're blessed enough to have relationships in your life that support you, but there's very little you can do to support them back. It's a one-way relationship to accept that help, to accept that kind of space to go in and um, and, 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 and nurture to what you need at a, at a soul level. So that's what brought me back uh, to myself. I was in a very dark space for about two to three years, very dark depression. And, um, but functioning, I mean, I was barely functioning. I, I don't even remember details of that period. I have a memory loss um, during that time. But, uh, but here I stand today, I started to come back this way in 2015. So I got diagnosed in 2013 in March, had the first surgery in March, had the second surgery in August of 2013. Um, the day after the sur- second surgery, um, my marriage fell apart. I got a text saying um, I filed for divorce. So, yeah. So, you know, my life just imploded. I could bounce back from the, the best cancer thing, but I, that combination of the two leveled me. But here I stand today, and it was not something that happened overnight. Like, ooh, I'm better. Um, it was um, a, a, a process. So when I was asked in 2018, when I started to feel better in 2016, that I was asked in 2018 to give this TED talk, I knew what I wanted to talk about. And I just had to pray for the, the courage to 
to be honest and truthful about um, the most painful time in my life. And because of that, it so deeply resonated with people. It really gave birth to this grit and grace movement that I'm um, growing and building now. Yeah, tell us a little bit about that. And but and as I said, the the talk is beautiful and we'll publish that in the show notes. But so talk about your media company. What are you doing with it, the consulting media company? So the media company, so here's the thing, uh, Liz, Short answer is, is that um, I'm really one of, number one, ambassador for grace to really help people understand how to offer themselves and practice grace with themselves. But also, how do we support women? I'll be honest with you, uh, as a woman and a black woman in corporate America or in any leadership role, trying to, to send to the top. Uh, I have experienced a lot of trauma and it's just straight up trauma, Liz. We just have to be honest and say what it is. The micro macro aggressions, the intersection of of race and gender. uh, And I'm the target of that. Okay, not to mention I'm six feet tall. Okay, (laughs) so (laughs) that's like add that to the mix. But um, but. I, I, and I didn't know, I didn't have words for it then, but now I have words for it. And now that I'm working with women, um, it is universal and it's just not right. You know, we've got to do something about this. The, the kind of trauma that women are going through in these workplaces and these very difficult, isolating places. Um, so I, I have a heart for this. And, um, so I'm coaching women. And yes, we, uh, I'm, I'm glad that there are programs to sort of usher in, you know, greater understanding and diversity and equity and belonging. But my role is, and that we need to change things structurally. Uh, but while we're working on structural change, I want to help empower women uh, to one, learn how to take care of themselves until things are right. Um, and to learn how to advocate for themselves until things are better. And so that's what I'm focused uh, focused on, to be that support system, to be that coaching system, and uh, to be an encourager. And so uh, I just wrapped up our third annual Grit and Grace conference. Just happened. It went well. All of my conferences, all of my coaches, coaching sessions, it begins with soul work. And honestly, that's what women really lean into hard is uh, soul work to really learn how to give yourself enough space and grace uh, to uh, connect and listen to your your heart's desire, your soul. What does my soul need right now? And to um, know how to do that, uh, to normalize it, and, and then how to how to build a life around that. And so um, professional life, how to build success around that. So that's what I do. The conference was amazing. We had uh, in 2020, we pivoted and had to go online. We had 3,000 women online. This time we had about uh, 1,200, 1,300 women who registered and uh, from 30 different countries and uh, from every state. It was amazing, amazing. So I, 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 you know, it's a labor of love and in the lead up to it, it's painful, <laughs> not very much grace. Uh, but then when the baby gets here, it's beautiful. So it was, it was a beautiful experience. So you told me your mother told you, you need to take up space while you're here and always keep a project in front of you. I think I live my life that way as well. So I don't, 
I think given all you've got going, uh, I don't think you're failing her, but what's next for Grit and Grace? The reason why I began Grit and Grace is because I was trying to answer people's women's questions one-on-one through DMs and text messages. And so I needed a larger format to sort of to um, support and share with women more broadly. I think it's that it's the same concept that's going to drive my next. How do I grow the platform to touch and support uh, more women? So whether that's um, continue to grow um, the programming and the coaching and the conference and uh, looking for platforms to to build on. So whether it's a podcast like Third Act or or or, or a television show um, on a streaming platform, but um, I'm looking at those. Uh, I'm looking that looking at that as an option. So great. So I almost named this podcast. I'm not done yet because that's the way I feel. So what aren't you done with yet? Here's why I don't feel done. We are limited beings with unlimited souls. You know, the capacity of our souls is unlimited. And so I feel like I'm always in the position of wanting to express my soul's capacity, which is big. And um, so I don't know where that would land. I never thought I'd be here as this little girl from Memphis, Tennessee, uh, that I'd be here now. Um, I I don't know if I'll ever feel done. You know, my mother is uh, 84. She's a composer of classical choral music. She, uh, her works have been premiered at Carnegie Hall and around the world. My mother just completed her latest oratorio and it's probably set up to be her biggest one, biggest success. And so it's going to premiere next year in 2023. It's about Harriet uh, Tubman's life, but she isn't done. She just wrapped up her latest 13 work oratorio. That's, that's my bar. Cheryl, thanks so much for telling your incredible story. And we will put everything in the show notes about Grit and Grace and your TEDx talk. But where else can our listeners find you online? So they can find me. You can follow me on social media at Cheryl Jackson. And that Cheryl is it spells C-H-E-R-Y-L-E. The E is very important. Uh, right. So there's Cheryl Jackson, CherylJackson.com. If you want to sign up for newsletters and get information about uh, uh, the grit and grace movement and coaching. But those are the two things, CherylJackson.com and on social media. Great. We'll see you then. OK, thank you so much. OK, thanks. Bye. Thanks for joining me today to listen to the Third Act podcast. You can find show notes, guest bios, and more at thirdactpodcast.com. If you enjoyed our show today, please subscribe and write a review on your favorite podcast platform. I'm your host, Liz Tinkham. I'll be back next week with another guest who's found new meaning and fulfillment in the third act of their life.